the Department of Veterans Affairs for the third time in five years is putting all future deployments of its new electronic health record on hold. The VA says it won't bring the Oracle Cerner EHR to new sites until facilities already using the system show some improvement. The VA is in negotiations with Oracle Cerner for a renewed contract that would hold the vendor more accountable for systems outages. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And Jory, why are they hitting the pause now? Any particular event that happened? Not any particular event, but it's just been a series of events that keep happening. The EHR has been encountering, as you said in your lead, Tom, these outages, these persistent outages that keep happening, sometimes within the VA, sometimes more broadly across DOD and the Coast Guard as well. There have just been training and functionality problems that have frustrated VA employees. There have been some instances of VA clinicians quitting their jobs and leaving the agency as a result. And there's just been a number of cases documented by the Inspector General's Office of veterans seeing a degradation in care. There have been some patient safety issues. And what we've heard from Congress at this point is that there have been some fatalities that have been linked to some functionality of the ER. And we've heard as much from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. He said in a statement that the Oracle Cerner EHR is not meeting expectations. And so that is why that reset needs to happen. We heard more specifically from Neil Evans, who's the acting program executive director of VA's EHR Modernization Integration Office. He says that those go-lives are going to be on an indefinite pause until they get to the bottom of what's going on here. We at VA have been listening to veterans and we've been listening to our frontline clinicians, specifically our frontline clinicians at the five sites that are alive with the new electronic health record. And it's clear that the new EHR is not meeting their expectations. It's not meeting my expectations either. What does VA need to see to resume the go-lives? I guess not crashing and not killing people. More specifically, they're looking at what Dr. Evans said a moment ago, is that they're looking to see a better improvement from the sites already using this. This is five sites across the country that already have that Oracle Cerner EHR running. The vast majority of them have not seen a better performance since that go-live. They are worse off performance-wise than they were pre-go-live. And so that's the thing that they're really going to need to see change. And that's going to mean better reliability, fewer or none of those outages, as well as better ratings from clinicians and better ratings from veteran patients. Now, they have had these pauses before. This one is more permanent, more comprehensive, and it comes in the context of these renegotiations then. Is that the big difference now? Well, the big difference is that they do have a way forward and a better understanding of what the root issues are. We did see last month a report from the task force working on these issues. They have identified four key issues and about 14 fixes that need to be done in the short to long term. Some of these are going to be later this year. Some of those fixes might be beyond this year. What we've seen in the past is a pause on go lives in July 2021. And we saw a pause just last fall. And so that sprint report is really the key difference. And that's what everyone says is going to be the difference going forward. I would argue that what we're talking about here with this reset is really an extension of that assess and address period. And how it is different is the commitment to really do the addressing, that is execution focus, 
and the focus on the field. And while he's saying all of this, Jory, the reaction from Congress is getting tougher and tougher, isn't it? Yeah, and they have rallied around uh, a number of bills to address this uh, persistent challenge with the EHR. There were about four bills circulating between the House and Senate VA committees. What we did see is that the House VA committee, both the Democrats and the Republicans, were rallying around a Senate bill that would do actually what we're seeing now, that the VA would not move forward on new EHRs until those five sites actually show improvement. That's the core of that legislation lawmakers were rallying around. And what we've heard from those lawmakers is that they're generally happy that this is happening and that the VA is taking the time that they need to get to the bottom of this and ensure that future go lives are more productive. So they really need a couple of things. One, the outages to stop. It has to stay up because an EHR has to be up 100 percent of the time. But they also have to see quality and functionality improvements so that people don't quit over how bad it is or there is not this threat that a bad clinical outcome could occur as a result of it. Right. What lawmakers are looking for out of this is what the VA has said from the get-go here, which is that it's going to lead to better outcomes for patients. And so far, we haven't seen that happen. All right. And what does the company say? What does Oracle Cerner say about this? Well, we heard from Oracle Cerner is that they do support this plan by the VA to have this pause of go lives and that they are working with the VA to uh, deal with those underlying issues, deal with those fixes that I mentioned earlier in the Sprint report. And as you did say in the lead, Tom, the VA and Oracle Cerner are back at the negotiating table for a renewal and contract terms. And the VA specifically looking at terms that would hold the vendor accountable for these downtimes, these degradations in the EHR, and making sure that that doesn't happen. Well, Larry Ellison's Oracle has done a lot of acquisitions over the years. I wonder if they regret this particular one of Cerner. I want to ask you also about the DOD, which the Defense Department also rolled out over time, mostly rolled out, the same essential product, because the idea was they would be compatible, the VA and the Defense Department, over their electronic health record. It's going better at DOD, though, isn't it? It is going so much better than what we've seen from the VA at this point. DOD is about 75% complete with that implementation of the Oracle Cerner EHR currently, and they're expected to be 100% done by next year, by the end of fiscal 2024. And that's the question on everyone's mind at this point. Why is this going so much better at DOD than at VA? What we heard from Evans is that DOD had its own hiccups with the initial deployment of the Oracle Cerner EHR, and that's where they think that the VA is currently, and they hope to, at some point, get to where they are able to really pick up the pace of go-lives and do this not just one at a time, but to do this at multiple sites all at once and really get to a point where this is a viable solution. Yeah, get a bulletproof version and then roll it out fast, scale fast. Yeah, that's the current hope. Okay, well, we wish them well in that. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, 
and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where 
sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.